Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Crystal Bird Farmer about her new book, The Token, Common Sense Ideas for Increasing Diversity in Your Organization. Welcome to the show, Crystal. Thanks for having me. I am really glad you're here and that we're going to dive into this topic. To start, I wonder if you could tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a writer and a speaker. Um, I work mainly with intentional communities, which are communities that are um, formed around different values. So you think of communes, um, cooperatives, um, co-housing. That's, that's the type of community that I work with. And uh, I'm also an educator at a self-directed learning center for children with disabilities. That leads to the next question, which is what inspired you to write a book and this book in particular? Yeah, so, so being one of the only Black women in the intentional communities movement, it meant that I was usually showing up at conferences and events and people were looking at me. So if you think of intentional communities and you have the idea of a commune in your head, then you can kind of think of the people who are drawn to that. So they're mostly going to be white people, maybe young people, but people with a college education, um, people who are interested in sustainability or, you know, kind of getting back to more traditional ways of living. So the people who are in those communities and forming those communities don't always have a very uh, huge number of people who are different from them. So they usually have friends who are white, who are maybe Christian or not religious, um, people who don't have disabilities, people who don't have different things in their lives going on. Um, and so the question that I always got at these conferences is, how do I get more Black people in my community? Um, and so I was in Portland, Oregon at one of these conferences, and the whole experience of me being in Portland uh, was just really alienating, and I, I, I was um, I was upset. I just didn't like being there because there were so few Black people, and that wasn't just me being upset about, you know, why didn't I have more friends who were supporting me? It was more me thinking that, you know, there are people who want to be involved in the intentional communities movement. There are people who want to create communities, but when you have to go to a place that doesn't have any people that look like you, then you're getting thrown off the whole experience because you're not seeing people who could be in a community that you'd want to be in. So I wrote the book um, when I got back and I sold it about a year later and that's how it came to be. And can you talk a little bit about the title? Because you you talk about how the token can be a, a, a loaded term. Yeah, so you know when you use the word the token, that's usually something representing, you know, that they represent the diversity. Your token member is the person that you rely on to kind of tell you about other people's experiences of the world or to explain, you know, maybe for me to explain Black culture or to explain polyamory if I'm the only polyamorous person in the room. Um, so I use that to say, I don't want you in your community to go out and find that one Black person or that one LGBTQ person and ask them all these questions. I don't want you going and saying, please tell us how to be more diverse. I want you to turn to me, somebody who is taking up you know, that, that 
that role of, you know, explaining and educating. I want you to look at me as a token so that you don't put that work on somebody else. And you stress in the book that the work of diversity inclusion is not an afternoon conference or a workshop. It's not one conversation where you ask invasive questions of a stranger, assuming that they should answer for you. Mm -hmm. It's it's a lifelong work. And you stress in the book that it's not really about the conversation or the workshop, but it's about what comes afterwards and what you stick with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really a process. And I think a lot of people, when they, they look at the issues of diversity, they just want to have it over and done with. They want people to accept that they need more diversity to make all the changes and then for that diversity to come. But it really starts with the process of understanding the need in yourself and then figuring out what you can do and then encouraging and communicating to your, your the other people in your community about how to do it, convincing them that it's important, then they have to go through their own journey and then you move forward as a community. So it's more of a, a lifelong thing instead of just a, a quick fix. And so when an organization, say on a campus or the school itself, identifies that they want to be more diverse, um, then they have a a lot of work to do. And one of the things that you identify in the book that stops the work is is, um, that conflict is going to naturally arise and people get off put by that. Why would people believe any organization would be without conflict? Uh, That really, uh, that assumption was really confusing to me that if you want to change, you have to address some really difficult things, but people seem to be really unprepared for that. Yeah, I think people have this idea that if they get along in some areas and, you know, maybe they're part of the same organization and they're, you know, have some of the same values that they're automatically going to all want to go in the same direction when it comes to diversity. But once you bring up the issue, um, it does come it, it, it's, it's hard for people to to think, well, you know, I'm not racist, so we really don't have a problem with diversity. So why are we focusing on this? And then to have that conversation of saying, OK, it's not about you being this or that. It's about the community being unwelcome or less inclusive and ways that we can change that. And people have a lot of resistance to that. And it, it's very personal because it's based around identity, which is, you know, the, the most personal thing to us. So when you start bringing up these issues of identity, people really have a strong reaction to it. And even if you feel like your community has a lot of people who agree with you on some things, when it comes to those personal, really deep issues, they're going to they're gonna want to resist it. They're going to want to talk about it. They're going to try and make it, make the discomfort go away. And you talk about Part of the discomfort being um, white fragility and recurring issues of guilt and shame as these topics are talked about. And can you talk about how that's going to be an expected part of the process? Yeah, so most white people that I've encountered haven't thought deeply about race. I know that, you know, White Fragility, the book has been out for a while and we've had, you know, kind of the uprisings that were going on this summer. Um but there's still, you know, millions of people in the U.S. that haven't considered themselves as white, hasn't thought about what does it mean to be white? What does it mean that I have privilege? 
and that I have biases against people, that I commit microaggressions. So that work is going to be really, really important for people to do. And so when I come up against people who say, you know, I haven't thought about being white, that's the first thing they have to do. It's not uh, you know, you have to suddenly change yourself and be and be nicer to black people is what does it mean for you to be white? You know, what do you consider white culture? In the book, I talk about majority culture and how white people sometimes don't think that they have culture. But what does it mean for you when you're around people who look like you? What are some things that you take for granted? What are some expectations that you have of people? You know, what are ways that you're acting out your identity? In order to increase diversity, groups have to look at, um, you outline three key things. Uh, one is bias, one is microaggression, and one is privilege. So can we, um, can we define for the listeners what microaggression is? Yeah, so I define a microaggression as any action or act or words that cause harm based on somebody's identity. So a microaggression is something that points out someone's identity and is usually pointing it out saying, oh, you're different. So if it's a person with disabilities, you know, maybe somebody with a missing limb, you know, you're saying, oh, did that hurt? You know, so you're pointing out that person has a difference. I'm pointing it out so that you know that I know that you have a difference. And, you know, when it comes to Black people, a lot of people experience microaggressions around their hair, maybe their tone of voice, maybe people expecting that they're, you know, a single parent or come from a low-income family. And so when you when you make these assumptions and you say something that's pointing out, hey, you're different from me, that's a microaggression. And I say that it causes harm because that person is in your group, in your organization, in your community, because they want to be a part of a community. They don't want to be pointed out as the other. They don't want to be shown that they're they're not that they don't belong just because something that's a part of them and another thing that i like to talk about is that microaggressions usually have good intentions behind them when we're talking about building community or leading an organization you know you want people to um, get along you want them to be friendly but if the first thing out of your mouth when you meet somebody is something about how that person is different you know if it's their accent asking you know what language they speak um, then you're you're immediately pushing that person away. And on page forty four of the book, you you list um, some microaggressions. I know there's more than than you can put on the page, but I think some of the ones you chose are because people think that they're compliments. Um, things like your hair is so pretty, your people are hard workers, you have a cool accent, you are so articulate, you are an inspiration. And you said, here's the thing. We didn't invite you to start talking about our identity. And, and so that's the intention was apparently to be complimentary, but the effect was to otherize the person you're talking about things that you think are what they look like or what they sound like. Yeah. And that's especially true when it comes to um, something that the person didn't choose. Like if it's a disability and you're saying, oh, you're an inspiration, you know, that comes across to the person with disabilities as, you know, just me being disabled, you know, my purpose in life was to make you feel inspired. You know, that's that's not what we want to feel. A person with disabilities is still a person and they're just here to, you know, participate in the activity or, you know, the community, whatever they're doing. They're not there to show up and inspire people. That's not something they signed up for. That's just 
you know, what people are putting on them. So a lot of times with microaggressions, it's, it's aggressive because it's, 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 it's expecting something from them, like saying your hair is so pretty. Like, you know, I didn't do my hair for you to, to, to learn about what black hair looks like or what it can look like. You know, I did it because I, I want to, you know, to shape how I present myself to the world. Or if you have an accent, you know, it's like I grew up, you know, speaking a different language. So now when I speak English, I speak it with an accent. That's not something that I affected so that I could get your attention. It's not something that, um, you know, I I need correction on. And a lot of times when the person, when it gets pointed out, they're like, oh, did I say something wrong? Did I say something grammatically incorrect? Am I using English correctly? You know, so that's just putting a lot of work on the person. Um, who's marginalized already just because of their identity. And now you're, you're asking them to, to be inspiring or to teach them something or to show them something. And, and that's not what we're here for as humans. And you say that in the book, you say, my body is not here for your viewing and tactile pleasure. And you also say, never touch someone's hair. I feel like some of these are primers for elementary school. And yet this is a book for adults who don't know these things yet. Um, and one of the reasons that you you lay this out so clearly is that you say multiple people's curiosity over time is exhausting. The cumulative effect of microaggressions is a macroaggression. Yeah. So um, a lot of people, when they, you know, when they hear about microaggressions, they push back and saying, well, you know, this was just me, you know, saying something offhand, you know, I didn't mean it, um, you know, and, you know, I, I'm a good person, you know, I didn't mean it that way. But, you know, there are going to be thousands of interactions that a person has in their day, in their week, in their life. And the effect of all of those different people saying, I didn't mean it just means that you're, you're piling on to that person thinking, okay, maybe I don't belong in this community. And you tell people in the book, because the book is um, a number of sections to help people work bit by bit through how they're going to address these things, identify them in themselves and their organization, and move towards diversity and inclusion as an ongoing process. And you say that when someone in the group has the ability in that moment, and you stress that most people are too tired to take on microaggression after microaggression, they just silently endure them because it's a lot of effort and energy to educate the person. So if someone tells you not to say that to them, the appropriate response is to say, thank you. It's not not to cry. It's not to go into guilt or because that puts more burden on the other person than to deal with your emotional baggage. The appropriate answer when someone has let you know that your comment or your behavior was not appropriate, the the answer then is thank you. Yeah. And that's just from my experience and the experience of others of when you do try and say something like, you know, hey, you know, that comment was was not helpful. It was not as welcoming as you thought it was. You know, people go through these stages of response where they're like, what are you saying that I'm a bad person? Are you saying I did something mean? I'm not a terrible person. I really just tried to compliment you. And instead of me, you know, being able to say, hey, this hurt me, please stop. Now I'm comforting you. Now I'm trying to tell you that you're a good person. Now I'm forgiving you. And I, I am tired of doing that labor and I wanted 
people to know that there are probably other people who aren't even speaking up because they don't want to do that labor. So this is the idea is that you say, thank you. Yes, you can go and talk to somebody else and process it and cry and, and do all those things. But don't ask that person in that moment to do that for you. Go in and figure out what happened to think about it, you know, to talk about it, process it. Um, I wouldn't even say go back later and talk to that person. Just process it on your own with your friends, with allies, and then be done with it. Know that you can do better next time. And you um, talk about the importance of when a group is is going to undertake this work to bring in a facilitator to do it. Um, if the group is not not able to do it themselves, and but never ever look around in your group and and be like, well, I think that person is marginalized. We'll ask them for advice Um, that you're not supposed to um, assume that people in your group are, are are going to step up and and do this because they're already doing so many things that you, that you aren't aware of to ask them to take on this labor is unconscionable. Yeah. I, I say that you should look for somebody outside of your group who can do the labor of explaining to people, of arguing with them, rationalizing things with them, of calling them out. Because if you just point to your one token person, a person is already just trying to hang on and be a part of the group, you know, while they're they're not fitting in with their whatever their identity is. Um, and when you have somebody like that, step up into a role of leadership, they're going to get a lot more criticism than a person who maybe shares an identity with the rest of the group. So they're going to get a lot more criticism. They're going to get a lot more defensiveness. And that person is might even start feeling like, I really don't belong here. So I'm going to just tell them what I think they need to do and then leave because it's too much work to deal with all these people, you know, taking it personally and putting all these projections on me and arguing. So when you have an outside facilitator, first you have somebody who's experienced doing this work, who knows how to maintain those boundaries between their personal selves and their educator selves. There's people who um, can be kind of an outside expert. So they're not, they're not um, talking from just their experience. They're able to talk from a lot of different people's experiences and they're more used to kind of going through those arguments with people, you know, if it's around white fragility, you know, they can kind of go through those arguments and help people understand. And you stress the importance of giving everybody time and space to process because this is going to be an ongoing amount of work and people are going to have um, reckonings with their own identity or what they thought was their own identity. And that takes time and space to work on. Yeah. So I think about how, you know, in 2008, we had Obama and now it's 2020. And we have, you know, that we have now we have people who are just now waking up to the idea of racial inequity. Um, So there are still people who are going through this path. And for anyone to say, look, just get with the program, understand it all and keep moving um, is hard. And so it's, it's, it's important to recognize that people are going to be at different stages. And at those different stages, they need to be um, talked to in different ways. So there's a surgeon, um, I forgot his name, but the, the website is like Rethinking Surgery. And he kind of has this scale of like growing to be an anti-racist. And so, you know, there are moments in your journey where you're just kind of 
rationalizing it for yourself. And then you start thinking, okay, let me make sure that I'm acting in appropriate ways to people. And then you're advocating for people and then you're helping educate other people. So there are going to be different steps in the journey and you may be in a different stage than other people, you know, and it's not for you to look down on that person and say, Hey, you're doing it wrong and you're just bad. It's for you to say, Hey, this is something that I've learned. This might be helpful for you. You know, they may be in a place where they're open to hear that. They may be in a place where they're not open to hearing it, but you know, recognizing that everybody's at their own stage is going to be helpful. Um, you know, when it comes to like this environment we're in, which is very polarizing and people are taking sides and um, people are like excluding family members and excluding friends um, just because they have certain viewpoints. And I've always had the opinion that you, you have to keep people in, you have to stay in relationship with people around you, even if their views are not what you think they should be. If they're, you know, um, if they're racist, if they're sexist, if they're homophobic, you know, you are teaching them something by being around them, by talking about your life, by talking about the lives of your friends. You're helping them understand. You're helping them move very, very slowly to acceptance. Um, There are times when you need to call out behavior and tell people that this is harmful, but there are, I think the majority of the time, you are helping people feel understood while gently pushing them to be more inclusive. And one of the terms that we've touched on here is bias. Um, And I wonder if we can unpack that more because the book talks about the importance of recognizing what people don't recognize, which is that we all have implicit bias and it's Mm -hmm. pervasive. Everyone has it. And yet it seems to be something that we're, almost universally unaware of. Can you talk about that and and the effect that it has? Yeah, so I define implicit bias as the subconscious assumptions that we make about people based on their identity. And we do that because we're used to, our brain needs to categorize things very quickly so that we can keep moving through the world. Um, And so it's really important for people to understand that they have bias and that's just something that their brain is doing it's harmful when those assumptions that they're making about people are leading to them to be more um, exclusive or to be discriminatory. So, you know, if you have the bias against Black people being um, not smart enough or competent enough to have jobs as engineers or surgeons, then you're going to interact with people in a way that, you know, discourages that. So um, that may not be a big deal if you work, you know, in a factory and you're, well, it might be a big deal if you work in a factory. Let me try and find a better example. It's probably a big deal all the time. (laughs) Okay. So if you're a teacher, if you're a white teacher and you're teaching young black children and you have this idea that they're never going to be good engineers or scientists, then anytime they show interest in a STEM subject, you may discourage it. If they show something that's them being inventive or curious, you may just kind of mark it down as a one-off thing. Whereas with a white child, you might be more interested, more excited, um, talking to them more about it, helping them learn more, find more resources and learn more about it. So that's how bias can play out in, in your life. You know, if you are in a factory and you see an engineer, like I used to work in a factory as an engineer, um, and you see an engineer on the floor that's a black woman, 
and you have the assumption that, you know, black women are, are not good engineers, then you're going to treat them differently. You're going to give them different information than you would give if it was a male engineer or a white engineer. And that's, that's something that I did experience when I was working as an engineer. In the book, you also talk about how you experienced ableism when you were an engineer, when you uh, spoke honestly with your boss about some of the um, health issues that were affecting work. He then gave you the worst um, evaluation you had, you'd ever gotten. Yeah, so um, part of being in the engineering industry is is this expectation that you're going to work long hours, you're going to be on the floor all the time, um, you're always in conversation with people. You know, you're you're sacrificing your body and yourself to get the job done, and that's because most engineers have been men. You know, they had people to take care of their homes, take care of their kids. Um, you know, they they're, they're the breadwinner, so they they do the job. Um, and when I showed up as a woman engineer with health problems, chronic pain and depression, you know, I wasn't a good fit for the job, but also the job wasn't a good fit for me because my managers didn't understand how somebody needed to manage their mental health and their physical health while holding down the job. So there was definitely times when I needed accommodations and they weren't given to me because, well, a man can do this just as fine, a healthy person you know, so called healthy person does this job all the time. Why can't you? And so there wasn't a lot of flexibility for me to get the job done while taking care of my health. So, you know, the job evaluation. I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm just a bad engineer. Sometimes I think a lot of times the world wasn't wasn't set up very well for me to be supportive and to be a good engineer. So I think it, it could be both. This leads to the topic of privilege. The standards are laid out. You have a chart in your book about what is privilege. And for people to look at the chart and see where they fall on that and that the standards for white culture are considered to be the normative standards and they include being ableist and this idea that your personal life and the work of it is taken care of off screen. It should never show up in your work life. Um, And those, those biases, those implicit biases based on a standard created out of privilege affect your ability to, to even define yourself as a good engineer. Yeah, that's true. You know, I was coming in from a lot of different identities. So I was a woman, um, I was younger, I was black and I was a parent. You know, so for me to hold all those identities, you know, it was trying to figure out what does my work life balance look like? How do I raise my child in a way that feels good for me while doing my job? How do I manage, you know, the expectations put on me as a woman for being the caretaker and the homemaker and and all of these things while being in this traditionally male role of an engineer who works long hours? And so I was marginalized in a lot of different ways. And it was hard for people who were not, who didn't have any of those identities to understand, you know, why don't I just sacrifice some things and, and do it their way? You know, it was more like I should become more like them instead of me being true to my identity and how I wanted to live my life. You talk about in the book how the majority culture sees differences as a problem. 
And ignoring these differences means ignoring part of our identity. Um, I can't help but think how that workplace would have been better um, if all of the differences had had been valued as information that is useful in making not only the factory better, but bringing more points of view to the work that's being done. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot in the corporate world, and it may be true in academia too, is that they want the, the visible diversity. They want you know people to see that they have people from different um, backgrounds or different identities, but they also have this kind of standard image of what somebody looks like and what they, what kind of work that they do. And so for, for the engineering world that I was in, it was somebody who worked long hours, who was at every meeting, um, who could, you know, throw up PowerPoint presentations and talk during meetings to, to get their point across, who was aggressive. Um, and I just wasn't, I was hardly any of those things. Um, and so for me to show up and be myself, you know, even when I was doing my engineering job well, it was seen as not fitting in, not being, you know, quite a good fit, not being in the role of an engineer because they wanted this particular image of what an engineer does and not recognizing that engineers can do a lot of different things well while, you know, while holding different parts of their identity. You talk about that in the book that that diversity can be sort of a, a buzzword, but they they don't want to do the work of diversity, which means things will change. Change is uncomfortable. Um, and in the meantime, the people who were brought in to represent diversity or inclusion are forced to do something called code switching. Can you talk about not only what code switching is, but the damaging effect on people who are hired and told to be like the dominant culture? Yeah, so code switching is when you are adjusting your behavior, your words or your actions to fit in with the majority culture. And in the book I talk about in the U.S. majority culture is middle-class white culture. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that me as a Black woman would do when I'm with my home culture. You know, if I'm at home with friends and family or in my neighborhood, there are things that I would do differently when I'm in work, at work in the corporate world. Um, so code switching is this idea that we have to fit in. We kind of have to um, make ourselves quieter, more subservient. If I'm a woman, um, Black men often find themselves, um, you know, lowering their voices, shrinking themselves down physically, you know, so they don't seem like the intimidating um, Black man. Um, so when we code switch, we kind of have to mask, and that's a word from the disability community of autistics, when when they have to pretend to to fit in and be and be normal or typical, um, so that masking takes energy because we have to adjust, you know, the tone of our voice, um, the way that we're speaking. We have to adjust our behaviors, our hand movements, lips, you know, everything like that has to has to fit so that we can get along in the, the majority culture, and that takes a lot of work. And at the end of the day. You're very, very tired. And um, that's something that people who are native in the majority culture don't have to do because they, they just automatically do those behaviors and things that fit in. You say in the book, the key to, the, to diversity is not ignoring differences, but celebrating them. 
are there spaces you've been to that are achieving that, that are celebrating um, differences and been the step further is gotten to the place where they understand that this is what makes everything better when we're not homogenous, when we're not all trying to be the same. That's the point of diversity. Has anybody gotten to the celebrating and then the real work of incorporating? I think um, I think I've known a lot of communities that are doing the hard work and trying to get there. Um, you know, there's several examples that I can think of of communities that have made changes and it's been hard and they've had to adjust to it. But now, you know, the community is thriving. So if I think about um, New Culture, the Center for New Culture, which is in West Virginia, you know, they went through a period where they were trying to understand gender and create an inclusive culture around gender, you know, and so that involved putting your pronouns on your name tags, that involved changing the, you know, the restrooms that went from male to female to kind of making them more inclusive, Um, that involved ways that they gathered. So instead of having a women's circle and a men's circle, you know, you were kind of changing how you created those small groups. Um, and so that's a way that, you you know, it was hard and there was lots of arguments and I got to witness a lot of blow ups around it. But, you know, they were able to move through the struggle and become more inclusive so that people who are non-binary or gender non-conforming felt comfortable in that culture. Um, I think about the network that I'm part of for self-directed learning, which is called the Agile Learning Centers. And... Um, you know, they work with children and we do self-directed learning for children and adults. And the board of the Agile Learning Centers Network has done a lot of work around what does it mean to be inclusive and how do we make sure that different people's voices are are being heard. And so you'll see at individual centers, you'll have diverse groups of people. You'll see conversations in the community about how words are used. You know, what? how do we address pronouns? How do we address people using slurs or offensive wording? Um, you know, how do we deal with socioeconomic diversity? So, you know, if you think of self-directed learning, that's something that's different from traditional schools. And so that means that there's going to be some some cost, some financial aspect to how do you create a how do you create a space for kids to do that learning, you know, in a way that supports parents who might have to work from you know, nine to five or have to work multiple jobs or, you know, don't have money to send their kids to a special school. So the um, Agile Learning Centers Network has done a lot of work around that. You know, there's always things that can be done better, but by keeping it in constant conversation, you know, not just at the local center level, but in the whole network and at the board level, I think that's really important. That's really hopeful. When, when people are embarking on the work to know that there are models, um, there are places where they're achieving this. And it's always heartening to hear when the work is being done with small children, because that work will just keep going forward as the kids go forward and they'll take their parents with them. Um, one of the things you, you stress in several places in the book is don't avoid conflict just because it's hard. I'm wondering what are the lessons in how to sit with conflict that you all are using there in the center? Because so many people are taught that conflict is dangerous and that it's unsafe. And you mention in the book that people will resist 
they will quit, they will leave your organization and to expect that there will be some attrition that will happen. For the people who stay and who were not taught conflict resolution skills or who were taught that conflict is dangerous, are there some tips or tools that you're using effectively there in the center that maybe listeners could apply to what they're going to do in their own work now? Um, so some centers use nonviolent communication as a tool, and there's been criticism for nonviolent communication being too formal or being inaccessible to people with different backgrounds. In our centers, we really are very plain spoken and we literally sit with discomfort when it happens. So, you know, if a child comes up to me and says, um, you know, they called me a name or they hit me, then I say, you know, did you tell them that they hit you and that they or that, you know, calling that name hurt? And, you know, I'm putting it back on the child instead of me jumping in to fix it. I'm asking that child, okay, first of all, sit with the discomfort. You know, you got hit, you're hurting. Okay, that's fine. Um, let's, 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 if we need to process those emotions and we can, but next you need to go to the person who caused the pain and say, Hey, that hurt. And a lot of times the other kid is going to be like, well, I didn't do it or I didn't mean to. And then you have to kind of sit with that discomfort of, okay, they're denying my experience of the world of what happened, you know, and that's going to happen a lot of times, especially when you talk about marginalization somebody saying it's not really that bad or you're making a big deal of it. Um, and that's so it's okay that people don't recognize that because you're recognizing it and what you're trying to do is help other people understand it. Even if you don't think it's a big deal, even if you don't understand why it's a problem, I want you to be a part of fixing it, of making it better. And so instead of me going to the other kid and saying, okay, now say you're sorry, I'm telling the other kid, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what his experience of the world was? And I want you to understand that experience. And then I hope that you can reach out and, and do something to fix it. You know, and a lot of times they're like, no, I'm not going to fix it. I didn't do it and walk away, you know? And that's going to happen a lot of times with organizations too. You have grown adults who will um, get mad at a situation and just walk away. And so, so that's real life. So, you know, the kid can um, walk away. Maybe they'll learn. Maybe they'll apologize next time. But that's, that's what life is. It's, it's, it's allowing us to be able to verbalize our experience of the world and then just let it out there. And whether people understand or not, then we've at least said what we needed to say. The defensiveness, the denial of the behavior, is that back to the guilt and shame that you told us to expect would arise in doing the work? Yeah, because I think everybody believes that they're a good person and that they always do the right thing. And when you're being told you didn't do the right thing or you did something wrong, then they immediately want to deny it. They want to cover it up because they, they want to say that their intentions were, were the best. Or, you know, if it's a kid, it's like, well, I had a good reason for hitting him or yelling at him, you know? And so for, for us, it's recognizing that those things can be true all at the same time. Yes, you, you, you um, are a good person, but you also caused harm. So how can we hold that? And how can we help that other person feel better or to feel like there's some resolution to this? without, you know, making you into the bad person. It's not good and bad. It's not good guys versus bad guys. It's people who are making mistakes and need to stay in relationship with each other. 
And there's also some acceptance that you won't stay in relationship with everyone. Is that right? That just to accept as you do the work of the real work of diversity, inclusion, not just the buzzword, but the actual work. And you, you call it the work, capital T, capital W. Some people are going to quit the organization or the group. They're going to leave. And you, you need yeah, to let them. Right. That's where they are in their process. Yeah, I think there there's always going to be people who leave. Some leave quietly, some leave loudly, but it's okay to let those people leave. I think that if you make your organization so that a few more people who are of different identities come in, and if that makes a few more people of you know, the majority identity leave, I think that that works out fine for me. And you also caution us against expecting an outcome. Is that right? That you can do the work you need to do the work. The work is ongoing, but to expect that you personally will see the results, that your organization will become diverse, that it will become inclusive is really not something that you're supposed to try to control. The main thing is to do the work. Yeah. Part of it is that I'm a cynicist, so I I don't believe that all organizations are going to be able to get to, you know, perfect inclusivity and perfect diversity. You know, I don't even think perfect diversity exists. So, you know, part of it is that you may do all this work and you may have like one or two more people with different identities who come in. You know, I think majority white organizations that were founded as majority white are always going to be majority white. It's more important that you're doing that personal work of understanding how diversity works, what privilege and bias and all those things are, and that you're changing the way that you interact with the world. I think that's much more important than your numbers of how many diverse people you have. And one of the things that you suggest is that all white organizations acknowledge that they are that way rather than continue to tell themselves, well, nobody else wants to join or they're just not interested in what we do here. Um, you invite people to look at how they um, how they have accessibility, where their location is, what transportation is available to get to them, how they offer a culture of respect, what the ground rules are, um, even literally what kinds of invitations are issued, what pictures are used, what language is used, where where are these invitations posted? Yeah, so in the book, I, I devote a whole section to really practical um, tips of things that you can do to just be more inclusive just on the face of it. And these are not going to be things that are going to bring, you know, hundreds of people in with different identities, but it's going to make a difference to those one or two people. When I think of the co-housing world and co-housing communities, you know, a lot of those are majority white. And when they start setting up their meetings or advertising, you know, they're reaching out to white churches. They're going to coffee shops that have mostly white people. You know, they're only thinking of their network and the people that they know. And then they wonder why they don't have any more diversity. So when it comes to recruiting or reaching out or thinking like, how can my community be have more people with different identities, then you have to start thinking about who do you know, who do you interact with on a daily basis? And are those people diverse? Because for most white people, you know, they're not. Most white people interact with a lot of other white people during their day, whereas people who are Black or have other ethnicities are interacting with a whole, a bigger range of people every day. And I think it's, you know, it's a very simple thing to just look outside of yourself and who you're relating to and and start to build connections in those other in those other communities. 
One of the terms you bring up that all white organizations sometimes toss around is the concept of reverse discrimination. Can you briefly explain for us why that's not a thing? Um, so reverse discrimination is the idea that um, that white people or people in the majority are being um, are getting less opportunities because of their identity. And it's not a thing because there's simply not enough black people or people with other identities to take up the work. So you may have one example of a white person who doesn't get a job and a black person does get that job. So that's one person in the workforce of millions of people. So you may be able to point to that one example, but if you look at the statistics, there are still a lot of white people who are getting more jobs than black people. So my favorite statistic is that, you know, a white college graduate or a white high school graduate makes more than a black college graduate on average. And just the just imagining how easy it is for somebody out of high school to get a job if they're white and then for a person to go through four years or more of college and still be denied jobs or to get lower paying jobs. It just blows my mind. There are so many um, resources in the book. When listeners get a copy of the book uh, in the back, there's there's a whole list of resources and attached to this uh, episode of the podcast will also include um, some resources to get you started. Um, but for listeners now, um, what do you hope this conversation will spark for them? I hope people start thinking about their networks and their communities. And if they've ever wondered, um, excuse me, if they've ever wondered why, oh Lord. <laughs> okay. I hope that people start thinking about their communities. And if they've, if they've thought about why don't we have more people like X I want them to start thinking, well, what has X experienced? And would that, what does X really want to be a part of your community? Or are they just kind of putting up with you for a while? Um, so I think everybody desires to be a part of a community. Everybody wants to be around people that have similar interests. But sometimes the challenge of fitting into whatever culture you have is, is, is not worth the you know, the benefit that you get from being around the community. Which do you hope listeners will take away from this? I hope that they will start to think about um, ways that they can look at people. Hmm. Let me think about this. I hope that people can start to understand that everybody has different experiences of the world. And just because that experience doesn't match yours doesn't mean that it's not a real experience. You have to understand that people have experiences of the world and they're going to interact with the world based on those experiences. So if you think about LGBTQ people or Black people, they're going to choose not to come to spaces because they've experienced harm in those spaces that are similar to that. So instead of saying, well, we're different, we're better, we're good, we're not going to harm you, try and think of ways that you can actually show that you're different, show that you're better, instead of putting the proof on them to say, just come and try it, show that you're already inclusive and willing to welcome them as they are. Thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your book, The Token, Common Sense Ideas for Increasing Diversity in Your Organization. We've been talking to Crystal Bird Farmer. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please 
join us again.